Welcome to the Lexington Public Library's Tales from the Kentucky Room podcast, where we discuss everything Lexington and Fayette County history. I'm Miriam, and in each episode of this podcast, we will feature a guest that will share a piece of local history. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. The War of 1812 began when the United States and its indigenous allies declared war on the United Kingdom and their northern indigenous allies over maritime and trade disputes. President James Madison would submit a letter discussing the grievances against the United Kingdom to Congress on the 1st of June, and by the 18th of June, Congress would vote in favor of the first declaration of war. While the war was mostly fought up north, Kentuckians were heavily involved in its declaration, the battles that would claim the lives of many, and the Treaty of Ghent, which would essentially end the war. Local author, gardener, and active community volunteer Doris Settles joins us today on the podcast to discuss her latest book, Kentucky and the War of 1812, The Governor, the Farmers, and the Pig where she documents her research on how Henry Clay and his Warhawks convinced Congress and President Madison to declare war and negotiate the Treaty of Ghent that ended it. After two massacres of Kentucky militia on the Northwestern Front, Governor Isaac Shelby, still the only sitting governor to lead troops into battle, more than 4,000 locals and a pig marched to Canada to defeat the British and kill Tecumseh at the Battle of Thames. Author Doris Deereen Settles explains how Kentuckians won the War of 1812 and why it is far more significant than textbooks record. Thank you so much for joining us today, Doris, to Thank talk you for about me. your new book. Congratulations, by the way, on the on the publication of it. Thank you so much. So it is about the Kentucky involvement in the War of 1812. So before we get started on the Kentucky involvement, let's talk about a little bit how the War of 1812 started, just to set some uh, foundations for the podcast. Henry, Henry Clay, of course, was the leader of the Warhawks, and he and the Warhawks, were the, who were primarily Southern, were the ones that were pressing Congress and uh, Madison to declare war because Great Britain was battering fledgling United States from two sides. On the East Coast, they were impressing sailors, American sailors, to get on and serve on British boats. They were losing so many sailors because of the war England was fighting with France and Spain at the yeah, time. Yeah, the Napoleonic the, Wars that right, were going on right. at the time. Yeah, And so if you had been born before the United States was, and they stopped an American ship and interviewed all the sailors, and if you were born before the U.S. was, which was almost everybody on the boat, they said you were a British citizen first. So they impressed them to work on the British boats. And so American shipping was really suffering. So that was the primary thing the East Coast was concerned about because it was disrupting shipping and getting goods back and forth. On the West Coast, the Northwest Territories, which at the time were Minneapolis, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio were seeing devastating raids from both the British and the Native Americans pressing back against westward settlement, which at that time was set. It had been set at the Appalachian Mountains, and nobody paid attention to that. So now it was set at the Mississippi River, and that was kind of a hard and fast at that point. You couldn't go beyond the Mississippi River. Even though we had purchased the Louisiana Purchase at that point, we couldn't settle over there because of an agreement with Great Britain and Canada, or which was Great Britain at the time. So Kentucky, having just become a state, 
and settled most of the Native American British confrontations that had been going on through the late 1700s felt bad for what was going on in the Northwest Territories. And so many Kentuckians, I mean, what's the image of a pioneer Kentuckian, right? He's got his rifle right there (laughs) and he's on his horse ready to go. So Kentuckians like to fight. Yes, they do. (laughs) Yes, they do. And they did then even more. (laughs) And so they signed up for short periods to go up and like the Battle of Tippecanoe, which was 10 years, I think, before um, the Battle of, before the War of 1812 was declared. So they had been going up and defending settlers in the Northwest Territory since probably before the Revolution as uh, settlement increased over those years. So Clay and his his warhawks pressed Madison more and more to declare war. And in June of 1812, he did just that, and Congress ratified it, or whatever it's called that they do. And we declared war. The eastern coast was not happy about this at all, and they actually considered seceding. Oh, wow. Because they disrupt trade even worse, and their livelihood depended on that. And yet, Kentucky and the people in the Northwest Territory were getting killed and losing their crops and their farms, because that was one thing the Native Americans would do, was raid and burn all the crops and houses and whatever. So that was the impetus for the War of 1812. Kentucky, being Kentucky, got very involved, had been involved before it started, and just got more involved when it started. Um, William Henry Harrison was declared the governor of the Northwest Territory, who was great friends with Isaac Shelby and Henry Clay. So um, he recruited troops from Kentucky routinely. Yep. And so those volunteer companies from Kentucky, of course, made their way to the battlefield. Exactly. And therefore, many, many, many Kentuckians were killed. It was four of five Kentucky males fought in the War of 1812. So 80% of Kentucky men fought in the War of 1812. Over 66.6% were killed overall were Kentuckians. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, a few of the battles that were um, involved or the Kentuckians were were involved in, which is the first one was the Battle of the River Raisin. River Raisin. Yes. That's the first one I focus on in here. Really, although I talk about Tippecanoe and, and other battles that let Fort Meigs and Dudley's defeat and all of that, that led up to River Raisin. There were a thousand Kentuckians that went there to fight. Six survived. That is, That must have been a really... Six survived or were not POWs. There were several POWs, and they were marched to Fort Niagara and taken to England. It was the story of one man in, in the book that went to England, and he, it took him 40 years to get back to Kentucky and wow. find his wife. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine coming back to your wife after, after 40, 40 years? After no. 40 years. And whether she would even be there or yeah. be married to somebody else exactly. or whatever. Exactly. Um, but when they went into the Battle of River Raisin, first it looked like they were winning. And that was true at the Fort Meigs battle as well. And then after the battle was over, they took the prisoners and put them in a stockade. And there were houses in the stockade, so they were supposed to stay there. The British, who were supposed to be overseeing the prisoners, turned to the Native Americans and said, do what you want. Yeah. So they did. They burned the entire encampment. 
And if the men tried to, or women or children, because women and children went with their husbands as a rule. I see. Okay. Not as a rule. There were limits to how many could come. And they actually drew straws the night before they left to see who got to go, which wife and, and family got to go. And so as they tried to get out of the burning houses, the Native Amer- Americans would massacre them. So when this word of this massacre got back to Kentucky, particularly to Governor Shelby, he was so incensed, and Kentuckians were so incensed, the phrase, remember the raisin, became a common phrase for years to come. And Governor Shelby asked the state legislature if he had their permission to go north to lead troops into battle in revenge for the massacres at Fort Meigs, Dudley's defeat, as well as the um, River Raisin Massacre. So the governor led the troop. Yes. He asked for a thousand Kentuckians to meet him at Newport, and he got permission from the legislature. And when he arrived, there were 4,000 Kentuckians and their entourages. Some had slaves, some had wives in tow, some had wives and children in tow. So, yeah, amazing. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I'm trying to think why would anybody want to take their wives and children to war, but why I would guess... a wife want to go? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and my ancestors may have been on that. I have um, three ancestors that were on that track. That's interesting. So have you done your genealogy and, and yes. traced it back yes. to... Oh, that's incredible. And I've actually traced one, a verified one. I'm a... I'm, a member of the Lineage Society, Daughters of 1812. And uh, with that ancestor, John S. Oakley, who's in the book, became a state legislator after the War of 1812. Anyway, he was on the truck from Newport to uh, the Thames in Canada with the pig and Governor Shelby. Yeah. And I don't know if his wife and children, he had two children at that time, went with them or not. But that's the theme, I guess, or central theme of the Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau talk that I do as Peggy Oakley. Her name was Margaret, but she was called Peggy. And uh, she lived to be a ripe old age. And so it would be, it's interesting for me to, to put her in that position, having followed him north and help in the battle which many women did. They reloaded guns, they reloaded cannons, and were right there in the thick of it with their husbands. I don't know what they did with the children. I'm hoping they were reloading as well. (laughs) One of the children, her children, would have been 18 months old. So I guarantee he wasn't on the battlefield. No. So you mentioned the pig. Tell us a little bit about this interesting pig that followed Governor Shelby. Well, remember I said there were 4,000 men milling about in Newport looking for entertainment. (laughs) And as men are wont to do, they were looking for things to bet on. So two pigs were fighting in the street over probably a crust of bread or a piece of ham or a bone or whatever. And so the men gathered around and started betting on them and encouraging one pig or another pig. And one pig got run off so the victorious pig, they kind of adopted. And they As their gave, <laughs> And it was a female. It was a sow. So they gave her rub downs and they fed her and so forth while they were waiting for Governor Shelby to show up. And when Governor Shelby showed up and he said, okay, let's get on the boats to go across the Ohio and let's start north. So the pig tries to get on the boats with them. And Shelby and the men said, go home, pig. <laughs> and th- at that point in time, livestock was not fenced in. So it just wandered wherever. And when it got hungry enough, if nobody would feed it or couldn't find any food, it would go back home. So the pig wasn't going to stay put. (laughs) So they're on the boats crossing the Ohio River, and they look down, and the pig 
swims the Ohio River. Incredible. Who knew pigs could swim? Uh, who knew? <laughs> that's, that, that's a sight I'd like to see, though. And when they got across, they, they congratulated the pig and fed the pig, <laughs> and it followed them all the way to put in I mean, Bay. if he went through the trouble of swimming the river, then he deserves to go Exactly. They, had, exactly. they certainly adopted him started, and named him Kentucky Militia Pig. And he marched with them all the way up to Put-in Bay on Lake Erie, at which point they decided he can go with us to Canada. And so they're getting on Oliver Lewis Perry's boats the week before he had just secured Lake Erie for American purposes. And so they're getting on the boat and they're trying to get the pig to come on and the pig's refusing to get on (laughs) and go into Canada. One of the journals of the men that was there said our Kentucky militia pig was too much of an American to set foot on foreign (laughs) soil. (laughs) So they were quartering some of the horses that put in bay. So they just put the pig in with the horses. And he was there when they came back. That's incredible. So the research that you put into this revealed, you know, several important figures throughout this, one of which is Richard M. Johnson. Talk to us a little bit about him and his role. Interestingly, Richard Mentor Johnson was serving in Congress during the War of 1812. With the Shelby and the 4,000 Kentuckians and the pig started marching north in August of 1813. So a full year and a month, two months after the war began. So he resigned his position in Congress to go north with Governor Shelby. So he came from Washington, went to Newport with everybody else and led a division north. Almost all of the Kentucky volunteers were mounted. Some of them, when they got to put in bay, were diverted to come around on land to uh, Detroit and then go north from Detroit. Most of them left the horses at put in bay and got on the boats and went across with um, Perry. So Richard Johnson was on that trek going north, and he had a a group of people. He was he was one of the ones that got on the boats, and then I don't. Many of them got horses after they got into Canada. I'm not sure how that happened, and went up to the Thames, which is a river north of Raisin, the River Raisin, but it's in Canada, and met the British under Proctor and the Native Americans under Tecumseh, and of course at that point. Tecumseh has has spent eight, ten years trying to gather tribes together all up and down the United States, from Canada all the way to New Orleans, to create a pan-Indian confederacy to push back politically against the settlement, further encroachment on their land. And Tecumseh was originally from Chillicothe, Ohio. And at this point, he's living in northwest Ohio, almost Indiana. And so he's already been pushed out of two places where he's lived. And he was an incredible politician. The more you learn about him, the more respect you have for him. He just was an amazing person and very ethical. When he found Native Americans slaughtering whites or British or Americans, um, he put a stop to it. And he would, he would kill the Native Americans to make them stop. So he was there as well in the fight. And the Native Americans were in the swamp to the right, and the British were to the left on the main road. And within five minutes, the fight was over with the British, and Proctor left everything, was hightailing it north into Canada. Left his wife there. Oh, my. Okay. (laughs) I don't know that marriage survived. (laughs) I haven't researched into it, but 
I can't think that it would. And so they fight at, at the Battle of the Thames, and Richard Johnson and his brother go into the swamp mounted, and some of his troops were mounted, some were not. I don't know if my ancestor was or not. And Richard Mentor Johnson, after the battle, claimed that he killed Tecumseh. Okay. There are many people, including several eyewitnesses, that said he did not, that other people did. But he had a great social media <laughs> manager or something, whatever social media was in 1813 or whenever he was running for president, I mean, vice president. He got the word out that Rumsey Dumsey Johnson killed Tecumseh. Wow. <laughs> and so he was elected vice president uh, along with Martin Van Buren as president. And that was his claim to fame until he died. So, so the politicians book, have always had spin doctors. To that's right. To, exactly. To make, to make their. And um, the book lists the other, there are five people that may factually have killed Tecumseh. Yeah. And the book tells which ones. And it's always um, most hard. reasonable. Yeah, it's hard to you know make pinpoint what is fact from fiction and a right. chaos of war, really. So, well, even outside of war, my prohibition book talks about how bourbon was invented, and there are six or seven different in- invention stories about how bourbon came to be. And of course, Bourbon County claims Elijah Craig, and Nelson County claims Waddy Boone, who was who was the first person to ask for a, fa- a state license to sell bourbon. In 1776, I think. And he was in Nelson County in 74. Yeah. So he likely is the person who, who invented bourbon, but we will never know. We'll never know. We'll never know. And we will never know who actually killed Tecumseh. And actually, um, Simon Kenton, who was at the battle, and he had met Tecumseh on numerous occasions and considered him a friend. As did Harrison. Harrison had incredible respect for Tecumseh. And so the American Kentuckians asked Simon Kenton to identify Tecumseh on the field so they could desecrate his body. Mm. And Kenton pointed to a random Native American and said later in his life that he misidentified Tecumseh on purpose. He didn't want to see his friend's corpse desecrated. We, nobody knows where Tecumseh's buried. Nobody knows how he got off the field. It was p- traditional practice for Native Americans to remove all their dead from a uh, battlefield. Yeah. They had to leave so fast they couldn't do all of that, but nobody could identify Tecumseh on the field after that. So. Yeah. The battle and war always make people do things that, you know, normally wouldn't do, unfortunately. The war was ugly, but it came to an end through the Treaty of, of Ghent or at least officially. Yeah. Actually, the Battle of the Thames was the end of the war because after that, British being routed, Pan-Indian Conference falling apart, Great Britain said, we're done. Let's get to the table and end this thing. So that was the beginning of the end of the War of 1812. Of course, it went on for another year and a half, communication being what it was. And the Treaty of Ghent was actually signed two weeks before the Battle of New Orleans took place. Mm. So that technically wasn't an 1812 battle, although certainly it was. that's why it was fought. Yeah. And who was involved in, in that treaty and, and ratifying that treaty? Again, Henry Clay. Yeah. <laughs> so he started it and he ended it. He did. He did. So from the beginning to end, Kentucky had a huge role in it. And in the Battle of New Orleans as well. Those were primarily Kentucky and Tennessee men. Wow. Wow. And that was the battle that really ended the war. It was just the last big battle, even though it, it actually wasn't technically within the confines date 
effects of the War of 1812 because the treaty had already been signed, but um, they just hadn't gotten the word yet, and Andrew Jackson became president because of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's a fascinating book. You know, like you hear about the Kentuckians' involvement in the War of 1812, and it's a, a very big badge of honor that a lot of Kentuckians wear. But it is a fascinating, and I'm sure the research was was a lot of fun. It was fun. Yeah, good, good. How long did it take you to write write this book? To actually write the book, it took me about eight to 10 months. But someone, I was at a, I was on a board of a youth writing organization about eight years ago. And a person at that meeting told the story of a pig that went to Canada with the War of 1812, Governor Shelby and the War of 1812. And I thought, nah, <laughs> I don't <real>. believe that. <laughs> so I came home and I asked Dr. Google. I think Google existed at that point. Pretty sure it did. And, um, and found it was true. And so I decided this will make a great kid's book. <laughs> Not little kid's book, but kid's book. And like kind of like War Horses. Yeah. So I wrote it. Every editor and agent I showed it to said, this is a great story. You've got to get it published. But it needs to be a different genre. No matter what genre I, I put it in, that's what I got. And so... About a year and a half ago, I'd written the Prohibition book in 2016 with Dixie Hibbs, and I thought, you know, History Press would love this as just an adult book, just about Kentucky. And by that time, I was really engrossed in, whoa, Kentucky had a huge role in the War of 1812. The more I read, the more involved Kentucky was. And so I decided it was a bigger book than just the pig, although the pig was the hook, obviously. <laughs> so they jumped on it, and I wrote the book. I still want to do a children's book, but I think in that intervening eight years or so, the genre genre it fits has, has been created. I think it needs to be a graphic novel. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because everything's made into a graphic novel these days. It is. <laughs> yeah. But you mentioned your book on Prohibition and Prohibition in Bardstown, um, the title that your contribution to that. Tell us a little bit about that book and, and why it came about. I was writing a different book for History Press on Bardstown. And when I sent them a draft, they said, there's no brothel. <laughs> because and because I said, Kentucky had a lot of brothels. <laughs> every town, they th I Apparently. guess they thought every town had a, had a brothel. There were two things that both Dixie and I went, what? I've known Dixie for a long time. My family's from Bardstown, even though I only lived there a couple of years after I graduated and worked for the newspaper there. But my husband grew up there, and his family's been there since 1770s. So I told Dixie the story because I had said when they said, there needs to be a brothel in every wicked book we do. And I said, you know how big Bardstown was? <laughs> it's, no, this is not. There was no brothel. People didn't. It was too small. People wouldn't know they were going to a brothel. So they went to Louisville. Close enough. No brothel in Bardstown. And I could find some ladies, <laughs> but no brothel. And they said, well, you have to find something because we have to have a brothel in each of these books. And I said, well, then we're not going to publish this book because I'm not making up history. So I was telling Dixie this story. And Dixie's written a bunch for Arcadia, which are mostly longer captions. And she didn't really want to write a narrative. So she said, they've asked me to do this prohibition book in Barsan, and I don't want to do it. 
But if you'll write the narrative, I'll come up with the pictures. And I said, done. Mm -hmm. So I used most of the wicked course in Bardstown, what's going to be wicked other than things surrounding bourbon. So most of the wicked book went into the prohibition book. (laughs) And that came out probably within five months of us signing the contract really fast. You have a lot of a lot of published books and various subjects. So you have children's books. One of them is Lyra Clara's Garden Journal. Now you, uh, from your website, I see that you are a avid gardener, master gardener. And I've been a master gardener since 2010 with wow. the County Extension. Mm-hmm. But I've gardened since I was little. Yeah. My grandmother has taught me to garden as Lyra Clara's grandmother teaches her to garden. Yeah. And is that what inspired this book is your grandmother? Actually, well, yes and no. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to honor my grandmother's teaching me that. And Lyra Clara is actually my grandniece who lives in England. And so I talked to her about gardening. And But the impetus for it, I, I did a lot of speaking at and workshops at education, mental health, and juvenile justice conferences back in the day. And when Richard Louvre came out with The Last Child in the Woods, and the No Child Left Inside movement began. I got really involved in that as somebody very interested in gardening and the natural world and ecological issues, environmental stresses, and so forth. So I began doing presentations on that and did that for a number of years. And so when I started writing books, when I stopped working... And started writing books, which is work. Which is work, definitely work. It is, it is. A different kind of work, though. Yeah. Uh, I decided I wanted to write a children's book t- that would encourage kids to get out in digging in the dirt uh, and planting flowers and so forth. So I came up with the idea of Lyra Clara learning to garden from her grandmother, going home. Her parents are not at all interested in gardening, which my parents were not either. And so I just went and bought plants and stuck them in the yard. And so I was putting shade plants in sun and sun (laughs) plants in shade. I didn't know. Well, that's how you learned. It it is. And I had a neighbor who was wonderful. She would come down and help me figure out what needed to go where and what I shouldn't put next to something else and so forth. And her backyard looked like my grandmother's. And so she was wonderful and a great help to me in learning how to garden. So that's Lyra Clara does that. She goes home and grows her own garden and then remembers her grandmother. When she's with her grandmother, they cut a bouquet and take it to somebody every day. So she decides to do that. And nobody in her neighborhood grows any gardens. They have the requisite three shrubs and a tree and that's it, which was what my parents had. And so she remembers doing that with her grandmother. So she starts taking uh, bouquets to the neighbors. But there's this one curmudgeon who always yells <laughs> at the kids. There's always a curmudgeon in a the neighborhood. There should always be a curmudgeon <laughs> in the neighborhood. And he doesn't act like he likes kids and so on. So finally, she's given bouquets to everybody. And so she has to go give him some to Mr. Thorny. So she she goes up and they end up friends and growing their own flowers. And then the last page in the Lyra Clara Flowers book uh, is How to Grow Zinnias, because in my opinion, there's no better pollinator plant than a zinnia. And once you have one blooming zinnia plant, you never have to buy another zinnia seed because the flowers turn into seeds. Yeah. And you can collect those seeds. You can indeed. And every book comes with that you buy from me comes with a packet of zinnia seeds. Nice. 
That's very lovely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and talking to us about your various projects. And again, congratulations on Kentucky and the War of 1812, which is available to purchase through which website? It's, it is my website, dorasettles.com. It's also available locally in Joseph Beth, and it will be at the Good Foods Co-op. They have my other books um, as soon as I get them over there. All right. And, and it will be available to check out at the library soon. Great. Yeah. And it's also at Georgetown in the new Fabled Forest and A Likely Story in Midway. Nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Doris. It was lovely talking to you. Thank you. You as well. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Kentucky Room, a podcast brought to you by the Central Library's Kentucky Room staff at the Lexington Public Library. If you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you have any questions about local history or genealogy research, you can visit us in the Kentucky Room to use our collection and newspaper microfilm, or you can email us at elibrarian at lexpublib.org. That's elibrarian at l-e-x-p-u-b-l-i-b dot org. I'm Miriam, and we'll be back with another trip down Lexington's memory lane.